This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 304, a conversation with D.G. Chichester. This is the Comic Shenanigans podcast, and this is episode 304, our conversation with D.G. Chichester, Daredevil writer from the 1990s, amongst other Marvel products at the time. Uh, Today's episode uh, was a lot of fun. We got to sit down and talk to to DG, um, or we'll, we'll actually get into his actual name in a minute, but, uh, cause we do talk about the origin of the DG Chichester. Um, but, uh, it was a, a very fun and enjoyable interview. Uh, is very frank about his career and his time writing Daredevil. And I thought it was a really fun kind of look behind what it was like to write a book like that at the time, what kind of went into fall from grace, tree from knowledge, uh, sorry, Tree of Knowledge, I guess. Um, Follow the Kingpin uh, were just some of the kind of major storylines he was writing. So it was actually a really enjoyable episode, especially if you're a fan of Daredevil, to kind of get a sense of, you know, what what happened to him in the 90s, or at least during this particular few years, I guess two or three years, um, and what, what, yeah, what was kind of behind it, what was the kind of inner workings. Um, so that'll be coming up in just one second. First of all, some house cleaning, or housekeeping, I should say. Or if you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also post in our HRealms threads if and when we ever get back to doing them. Uh, and also you can listen to us on Stitcher. So our next episode after this one will be episode 306, which will be a new Talking Hero Clicks episode with Nathan Strzok. And after that, we I believe we'll be having some more interview episodes uh, going into the fall and um, so I guess it's becoming a fall interview series uh, as opposed to just the summer interview series. But uh, as long as you, know, you, the listeners, are still enjoying them, I'll keep trying to put them out when I can. Um, for me, it's been really fulfilling to be able to talk to these creators and talk about you know, comics I've enjoyed reading and uh, getting a, a better sense of who they are as creators. It's been really cool and uh, definitely an eye-opening experience. Probably my favorite thing about doing the podcast so far is being able to actually talk to some of these people uh, and having a platform that I can actually... Uh, convince them to talk to me and not just on my own <laughs> and then record it for posterity but no it's very cool so thank you for your support if you want to support the show you can do so at the bottom of a link that's on the episode's show notes um, we might be doing a Patreon soon I'm not sure if I'm going to necessarily go that route but uh, if you're interested in, in you know, kind of supporting the show through Patreon let us know and we'll, we'll get kind of on that so that we can uh, develop that setup so that um, we're able to kind of support the cost of the podcast. It's the big thing, uh, more than anything else. So, again, if you want to email us, comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Yes, it's not the easiest thing to type because it's just shenanigans. Uh, I wish sometimes that I'd given it something else, just something simple like comic cast or something that was not difficult. Anyways, without further ado and after three minutes of rambling, let's get into the conversation with DG Chichester. Dan, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing this evening? I'm very good. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us uh, and taking time out of your day. I'm really happy to uh, have a chance to chat about this this stuff. Absolutely. Um, so usually what I like to kind of start with is finding out about your history with comics, uh, if you're reading as a kid. But before that, I actually want to find out, uh, how did you start going by DG? Um, well, it's a, it's a you know, it's a nonsensical story. You know, when I first started writing, I was writing with a, a woman named Margaret Clark. We had um, been working together, and um, we started writing stories together, you know, at, at Marvel. And for some ridiculous reason, 
we thought that saying Margaret Clark and Daniel G. Chichester, which was the even more pretentious, you know, uh, writing title I would go with, would be way too long for all our letterer friends. We had lots of, you know, letterer friends in those days. It was done by hand. So we thought, well, geez, if I shorted the DG, that'll save them a couple of things. And I just started off doing that and quickly realized that it made a lot of people think I was a pretentious English guy wearing a tweed jacket all the time. But by then, it was, it was far too late. So I was stuck with it. That's actually pretty interesting. That's a good story. <laughs> That's not nearly as pretentious as you made it sound it was going to be. See? So, who knows what surprises await us in this conversation. Absolutely. So, when you now, were you reading comics growing up, or what was your first kind of exposure to comics yeah. as a reader? I was a huge, you know, like many folks, you know, who, who get into the business, or even don't. You know, I was a huge comics fan. I rode my bicycle, you know, to the to the newsstand, you know, every week. It really predates, you know, uh, direct comic stores. I would cross lanes of traffic that helicopter parents nowadays would never let their child go out. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, pick them up, and I had dresser drawers in my, you know, room filled with comics. I, I didn't go for the long boxes, just went right for putting the clothes on the floor and stack, stacking up the comics in that way. And, um, and just, you know, read constantly um mostly dc actually oddly enough probably because my initials and um (laughs) got to around 13 14 and and for no particular reason i've ever been able to pin down it wasn't like oh my god girls or or something else um i just stopped you know i still had them i kept them you know we kind of put them into semi-storage uh nothing acid free they've all decayed you know badly but um and really didn't pick up a comic again until years later when I was in college and went to the student employment office and and you know there was an ad for a typist at Marvel Comics and I went in and said geez I type really fast and and I know comics and realized that everything I knew you know from you know X years ago still pertained nothing really changed you know if you knew who the Hulk was and you knew who Thor was and so forth um, it, it was an easy re-entry into the world Hmm. Now, so you started as a typist at Marvel? No, I didn't get the job. Oh. I went in. <laughs> How pathetic can you be? You go in for a typist. I, I, it was in the foreign licensing department, and um, I walked in, and they, they really liked me, but they had just given the job to somebody. But they, they, they chatted me up, and um, I was still in college. It was like my second to last uh, uh, semester, I think. And um, they said, you know, we just gave the job away, but why don't you go downstairs and talk to, to Lynn Cohen, who is Jim Shooters, who was uh, the editor-in-chief at that time, uh, his assistant, although I'm sure Lynn, you know, had a much better title than assistant, but essentially that's what she was, but she needs an assistant. So there was a job opening for the assistant to the assistant to the editor-in-chief, which is essentially a gopher, mm-hmm. and um, and it was less money, and... Um, but it was uh, it was available, and I said sure, I'll I'll, I'll try it out. And so I started uh, as you know the assistant to the assistant of Jim Shooter, which was a pretty good proximity to be in, um, even though the job was pretty much gopher, you know, uh, oddball assignments and and a little bit of everything. What were those oddball assignments like? Like what type of assignments kind of came up that were kind of random? One time, Jim Shooter wanted. Um, you know, had a somebody he wanted to call it. It was a turkey award, so I got sent out in the streets of New York to find a stuffed plush turkey. You know, <laughs> just go off. 
Um, we had a we had a standing date, um, pretty much that um, every day at about three o'clock, this kid from was either Louisiana or uh, or Kentucky, definitely someplace in the deep south, would call, and he would randomly ask for a combination of heroes. Can Spider-Man beat the Hulk? Can Thor beat you know the Thing? Can you, you know the Punisher beat Daredevil? Whomever. Every day, a different combination. And I got lucky enough to sort of field these calls to the point where we had them like on a speakerphone and we would create these elaborate stories to answer this kid. And he must have been running up some crazy phone bills, you know, at that time. Because <laughs> um, uh, it wasn't, I think, one, you know, one price fits all. But every day at around three o'clock, that phone would ring and he would ask this random, you know, beat down question. So those were a couple of the ones that, that stood out in addition to what you would expect, packaging things up, running things around the office, um, helping go through the, uh, uh, the slush pile of submissions, uh, all, all those good things. It's interesting. Um, I was talking with uh, Peter Sanderson a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how you know, comic book companies have become more corporate. And that, the scenario you just ex- kind of expanded upon of this kid calling, wouldn't, I don't think would ever happen now. <laughs> No, I'm sure it would get it would never never get answered or it would get fielded somewhere. Or, you know, the kid could just go to you know a, a website these days. That's but true. Listen, yeah. it was very much um, you know a, a really relaxed um, uh, you know exciting atmosphere. I mean, it really was the kind of if you picture the Marvel comics, you know, um, and the bullpen and those sort of things in your head, it really did live up to it. The thing that was missing was you know nobody was wandering around the office in costume, and then your favorite writers and artists you know for the most part did not work there they were working as freelancers but you know the bullpen was a was a pretty wacky place and it was um you know overseen by people with a lot of personality and the editors all had you know kind of larger than life attitudes in one way or the other so there was a lot of pranksterism and a lot of uh, uh a lot of good fielding of of energy you know amongst the people now how did you start actually moving into editing well, at the end of the semester, which was weird, you know, the, and I was still in college at that time, I was at NYU Film School, um, I left because I had a job I had already lined up for the summer at home, and nobody leaves. You get a job at Marvel Comics, nobody, you know, leaves. And I said, well, I'm going, I, I got this thing lined up. They were shocked. And, you know, and, and you know, what do you mean you're leaving? We, we thought you were here for life. And uh, <laughs> you know, there's only so many stuffed toy turkeys you can find on the streets of New York. But um, <laughs> so I, I went home and um, and went to work at this uh, kind of ridiculous job, you know, I'd taken, which was for, uh, frankly, a lot more money, um, but nowhere near as interesting in its own way. But about midway through the summer, three quarters of the way through the summer, I got a call from uh, the folks at Epic Comics, which would have been Archie Goodwin's uh, division at that point, and. Um, and they said, uh, listen, we're, we're, and I hadn't really interacted with the Epic folks too much, a little bit, but not, not much. And they said, we're looking for an assistant editor. Um, would you be interested? And I said, well, that, you know, definitely, but I'm, I have a semester to finish. You know, I'm going back to college. I, I, have, to, I have to finish my last semester. Um, I was going to finish sort of mid, mid-year through. And um, they said, well, that's okay. You know, we can juggle around your schedule. You know, you can sort of do it semi-part-time or whatever. And I said, okay, that's, you know, there could be a lot worse things than having a a steady gig, and then even more so to kind of have a gig lined up when you graduate. Um, Comics wasn't what I was envisioning as my career path at that point. It was more, uh, you know, thinking I was going to get into film. 
but that seemed like a, a kind of a nice guarantee, as it were. And uh, so I joined the Epic staff um, when I went back to uh, school in the fall, and that was as an assistant editor uh, to their group, which was about three uh, editors, and I kind of floated between them working on their projects. And, and Epic, uh, you know, for your, your listeners uh, who don't know, was the creator-owned uh, division of, Ep- of Marvel at that time. So these projects were usually a bit more eclectic. Uh, the production values were a lot higher, a lot of painted, you know, and, and heavier illustrated things. And these projects were owned by the by the creators as opposed to owned by Marvel. What was your favorite epic book that you worked on? Jeez, I mean, that was, there were so many. I mean, I came into it on Moonshadow, uh, which was this amazing um um, you know, book that Jam Dematis was doing um, with Jam Youth, and it was the first, I think, uh, kind of exposure to a painted comic, really mature themes, a really, you know, um, sweet and dangerous kind of coming of age story. That one left a huge impression on me. Um, uh, Grew, which I worked on as an assistant editor, and then got to work on um, for a, a long time as as the editor. Although when you edit. Sergio Aragonis and Mark Evanier, you pretty much just laugh a lot. And, um, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I guess and you just kind of get out of the way, right? Trying to get out of the way and you, you know, you, you, you feel what they need and you, you know, um, there's not a lot of that needed to be done on that. Um, and, uh, but probably martial law, I think was probably my, my favorite of the books that I ended up working on in a more committed way, which was, a you know, um, um, kind of a dangerous uh, anti-hero character that um, that was developed by um, Kevin O'Neill and, and Pat Mills and uh, uh, that one always was a was a real um, exciting one for me now as now as you're doing this editing eventually you started kind of moving more over to the mainline books is that right um, yes I mean you're you're editing at Marvel at Epic Comics whatever you're not paid a lot in those days I don't know if they're paid what they're paid nowadays but then it was a kind of a, a barely living wage, even even um, at that time, and you kind of had to look for freelance work, um, if, or or something else, you know, beyond the walls. Um, so a lot of people would do production work. They would stat things or pair things. Some folks got into lettering. Some folks got into coloring. And um, but my interest was in storytelling. So we we and that was myself and uh, uh, Margaret Clark at that point. We started. Um, pitching, you know, a lot of uh, different titles, fill-in titles mostly, um, you know, a lot of licensed material, a lot of licensed books from uh, bad um, or, or semi-bad uh, uh, TV shows, Thundercats and those kind of things, and <laughs> every now and again you'd pick up, you know, an assignment, some never ran, um, some, you know, would, would be, a, you know, a fill-in issue that maybe got in there, there was a notorious uh, West Coast Avengers story that, uh, that we did that uh, Mark Grunwald was uh, an amazingly patient individual to both give us the story and work us through a, a kind of very silly storyline. Um, but those are learning opportunities and, and um, you know, over the course of time, you know, uh, began to add up uh, to, you know, some more regular assignments. So I had some regular assignments actually within the epic world because Archie Goodwin had created um, uh, a series of licensed characters for epic called the Shadow Line which was supposed to be something that Epic could be more identified with and more um, more a bit of a superhero spin. And uh, he created the characters, and for 
reasons I never really quite glommed onto, but was grateful for. He he gave myself and Margaret the writing assignment on all three titles. So I don't know if he thought he was then going to be able to control us or like what we were doing or or, or what it was. But um, but we got a chance to sort of uh, learn as you go doing those, and then um, after a certain point. I began to also crack into the mainstream um, of Marvel with uh, with some things, primarily Shield. You know, Nick Fury was was some of the first um, you know canon uh, Marvel work that I did before we got to Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Got to Daredevil. Now, what what was it like writing Nick Fury, and what was your collaboration like with uh, Keith Pollard? Um, it was um. Uh, Actually, I didn't work with Keith that much. I worked more with Jackson Geis. Um, That's at, right, at, yeah. And, um, I mean, that was phenomenal. I was a huge James Bond fan um, as, as, a, you know, as a kid and growing up, and, and still am, you know, to, to some extent. And, um, you know, so this was a chance to indulge all those, you know, spy fantasies and, you know, and, and quirky little Cold War uh, sort of things. And, um, you know, I was coming uh, into it after the... Uh, you know, the Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, sort of thing that Bob Harris had kind of put together. And he had written the beginning of, I think, the series. And then there, he was he left it or he moved on to something else and there was an opening and, and I was suggested for it. So it was, a, it, was, it was just a lot of fun to do because it's a great character and I got to sort of really, um, you know, uh, reinvigorate some things with Jackson bringing his style to it. Um, you know, you had um, everything looked dynamite. You know, you want to bring back Baron von Strucker, he looks amazing. You want to anything you wrote, you know, just just had this sort of uh, Starenko, you know, flair, this kind of you know uh, larger than life sexiness, and so um, it, it was a good you know run. Uh, when the artist switched out, the style switched a little bit, but um, but it was definitely a great way to kind of test out a lot of. Um, things without having to be fully into the Marvel universe yet, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and yet play on the edges and sometimes introduce a character or talk about a, you know, a conceit and yet not have to dive headfirst into um, everything, which I didn't quite feel ready for yet at that time, probably. What, what was your writing style like at the time? Were you doing Marvel method? Was it more full script? What was the collaboration like with the artists? Um, always the Marvel method. I mean, I really liked it and, and still do to this day to some extent, even though I would write a fairly tight plot, you know, I would sort of detail page one or page two to four and I would get pretty detailed. Um, you know, door opens, this breaks, uh, you know, he hits this side, jaw cracks, whatever it is, you know, I I wouldn't do, you know, page five to 19, you know, they fight, go at it. (laughs) Some some people did. Um, Because I wanted to choreograph it in my head. But the reason I like the plot um, approach as opposed to the, you know, the scripting or the DC method um, was I like being surprised. You know, when when you work with a really good artist, and I was really lucky, I worked with a lot of really good artists, far better artists than I probably deserved, um, especially kind of at that point in my career, um, you know, you would write something and you'd get something back and and most of the time it was this, you know, amazing, delightful um, uh, surprise. And you would then be able to do something else with the writing that you, you know, that you maybe hadn't thought about because you didn't have to do the heavy lifting. They had done it for you. They had brought something to life. 
visually and you could tack in a slightly different way and maybe do an internal dialogue or or maybe just do a word or maybe nothing because it was so so wonderful um it was very rare that you would get something back that the artist would you know maybe go in a poor direction and then you had to spend the whole time explaining it because they didn't bother to to illustrate that although that did happen a, a, a couple of times to to comical effect so um <laughs> Now, switching gears, before we get to Daredevil itself, because yeah. I know that's probably what listeners are, are waiting for as well, because we had some questions about Daredevil for you, but uh, how did you come to work on the American Tale uh, adaptation? Um, how did I come to work on the American Tale adaptation? I, you know, that was that was one of the, of the you're in the mix, um, you're kind of my, you know, I, I was, I had a good reputation for, at that point, delivering on time and doing things that are tight turnaround. Um, that would change <laughs> sometimes, depending on certain situations. But um, you know, it was it was one of those all licensed things. Generally, came in too late and with and with a tight turnaround. And I think that was one that almost had to be done like over a long weekend. Oh, wow! Um, and I think I was just in the office at the right time at the right place, or you know, somebody looked up and I was there and. And they said we got to get this by end of the week. You know, it's been sitting around; nobody's worked on it. You know, can you can you churn it out? And probably my interest in film and background in film um, studies, at least, you know, maybe gave me a little bit of an edge because I could break the screenplay down a little quicker. I, I don't know for for sure. I think it was probably more. I was a warm body. Uh, they knew I'd deliver, and um, and it was actually, uh, you know, I actually remember having a lot of fun with that one. You know, because it was. Um, uh, you know, a fairly straightforward story in some ways, but you could break it down and um, and uh, and bring it to life. Hmm. So let's let's get to Daredevil, the uh, the uh, the devil in the corner here. Yep. So how how did the writing assignment on Daredevil come up? I mean, Anna Senti had been writing it for a couple of years, and suddenly you jump on during the lead up to three hundred. How did that kind of happen? Um, I didn't think I was ready for anything like Daredevil. You know, I was writing, you know, Nick Fury, um, dancing around a couple other things. Daredevil would not have been in my consideration in my inner confidence. You know, ultimately, sure, I wanted to work on more prominent characters, um, but it wasn't really in my thought process. Uh, Steve Busilato, who was a, a good friend and had been my assistant editor at Epic and also then my editor on some of those Shadowline, um, you know, books, um, calls me over Thanksgiving break you know i remember being home at my parents and um you know gives me a call and says you know Anne's leaving daredevil i think you should go after it and i said what are you crazy and i'm not ready for daredevil and and, and he just said well, you know ralph ralph macchio who edited daredevil at that point really likes your writing and, and ralph did he especially liked what i had done with with nick fury and ralph was a you know very much a um uh, a fan of you know classic Marvel, he liked that it brought back Von Strucker and made Hydra kind of dangerous, you know, for a, a little bit of a run. Um, so I, I knew that, and so Steve kind of put the bug in my head, and I called up Ralph and I said, "Listen, I know you probably got everybody and their mother coming out of the woodwork, you know, wanting to work on this character, but would you mind if I took, you know, a swing at it?" And he said, "Sure." So I sat and gave it a thunk and wrote. The proposal that I put together, which was based around really two ideas, you know, one which was that New York should really be a character in the in the in the book, 
that when Daredevil moved around, not just Hell's Kitchen, but other neighborhoods, you know, the neighborhood should have um, a personality, you know, not just generic water towers and, and such. And then the other thing was really, you know, just to take down the kingpin. Um, you know, we had, we, had, you know, there had been so much dancing around, and, and you know, there was always that drawing the line in the carpet or the sand or or both, sandy <laughs> carpet. You know, and and you know, if you cross this line one more time, Wilson, I'm really going to take you down. You know, the fat man crosses the line. No, I mean it this time. If you cross this line, you better watch out. And, and you know, it become this kind of toothless threat, right? And and there's part of that when you have two powerful characters where, you know, you want that eternal dance. But on the other hand, it, it starts to become, at least to me at that point in time, it, it felt very hollow. And so I said, why doesn't he do it? You know, why doesn't he just go after it? And Ralph, you know, bought into it and he said, go for it. And I was <laughs> I was like shocked and said, okay, now I guess I have to do it. Um, so those first couple issues were, you know, kind of getting the, the sea legs under us and then you know, the run, those four or five issues that really ran into 300 were, were the proving point of that story. And, you know, I was phenomenally lucky to be teamed up with, with Lee Weeks, who at that point was, um, you know, really coming into his own and, um, and really, um, you, know, a, 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 you know, a big fan of what that character could be and what could be done in that area. And we just, you know, we just synced up and, and you, you just felt everything kind of hitting on, on good cylinders. I have to say, Last Rites is probably one of my favorite Daredevil stories. Thank you. Thank um, especially because it's it's interesting because it's such a great climax to everything that started with Born Again, and yet it was separated by you know like sixty issues in the middle. Right. Yeah, but, I mean, obviously you're drawing from some parallels there, and and you know that was you know I mean that was the kingpin right doing his version of that in, in his own way. I mean, Frank Miller obviously doing the whole thing, but you know. The same thing. Daredevil taunts this man forever. He's the most powerful character in, in the East Coast and and whatever, and yet he allows this, you know, this renegade to sort of get away with these things over and over again until finally he says, Enough, I'm gonna destroy him. Um, but um, you know, certainly we weren't trying to to just parrot that. We were trying to tell our own story. Um, and I think we did. Um, and then I think I kind of lost my way after that. <laughs> well, well, we'll get later run in a bit. Uh, with uh, with last rights, you kind of for the for a while kind of put the maybe for a couple of years kind of put the last story for Typhoid Mary for a while. Um, how what was it like kind of writing that character and kind of I, I I'm trying to think of how to ask the question, but in Daredevil 297, you really had Daredevil. Doing almost uns- like kind of unspeakable manipulation of Typhoid Mary to be able right. to kind of break her down. Right. What was? How how did you kind of approach doing that? Because I remember, I'm, even when I read it now, I find it very affecting uh, and very strong stuff. But it really puts the character through the ringer in terms of his kind of his morality. You know, I, I as I said, I, I you know you sometimes hit those moments. You know, and as a writer, you know, and, and creator or something when you work with the right team and, and the right support and you don't know any better you know in, in some ways too um, you know you, you just throw yourself into it and, and I really you know as much as I could channel whoever I was then and, and I can go back and read that original proposal right that original um, document that I'd written for Ralph talking about the city and taking down the kingpin and there were a lot of those elements in there. And that was written in a, kind of a white heat, you know, after I got off the phone with Steve Busolato and 
and sort of wrote the proposal for Ralph. Um, I think it was just thinking this is a da- these are dangerous people. This is a dangerous situation, and the only way to get it, to get to the heart of it is he's got to become, um, you know, raw. He's got to be able to, to you know, uh, smile at dangerous things and do dangerous things and treat the situation not, um, you know, not compromising things completely to the other end, right? But but still in a way that um, I need to take this out. I need to take this woman, this character, you know, out of the situation, and this is the way I know to do it. Anything else is is just dancing around it. So to me, it was just, it just felt right. You know, it just felt like that moment of, of um, like there was nothing else. You know, I don't know any other way to, to describe it for as much as I can remember it all this time later. Yeah, well, I guess it is a long time ago. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that I think um, it, it works for the story that it had been so many issues since Born Again because when he finally takes down the Kingpin, it feels more earned. Whereas if, if it had been the storyline afterwards, it would have felt too rushed too soon. But because it had years to breathe and many like different ideas and stories in the middle, it definitely ended up feeling like you know a much bigger victory. Yeah, I think so, and I and I think it's also, you know, I have to go back, but I know, you know, again, what I was saying in terms of like how many times can he threaten the kingpin? That had happened a lot, you know, over those stretch of issues, and I think, you know, consciously or unconsciously, from a, a readership and a and a character point of view, you know, that felt like you got you got to make good on this, otherwise. And, and that's probably where some of the satisfaction of the story also comes from, because if he had just, you know, if the kingpin had just knocked him off, you know, his pedestal, the next issue or five issues later, well, I'm going to knock you off your pedestal. Um, as you said, it doesn't have as much, but the buildup, um, consciously or unconsciously, certainly made it much more worthwhile. When you were writing 300, obviously you had had, you know maybe a half a year of writing Daredevil already and working with Lee Weeks. So when yeah. you approached the script for 300, and this may be hard to recall, but were you consciously kind of visioning what Lee was going to put on the page or was it more independent of that and then you kind of saw what he, he brought to the table? Or like how, how was the, the writing process for Lee? Sure. No, I mean, Lee and I, again, were very, I think you'd agree with this, um, you know, simpatico at that point and very much talking about what was going to happen and, and how we were going to, you know, deliver on it. And Lee was eating up, you know, the little bits and pieces I was finding of history to kind of incorporate into it, like the the whole thing with the, you know, the, the, the gimmicked, um, you know, batons, you know, being, you know, still in hiding and having the blood on them and those kind of little things we were pulling out. And, um, you know, we talked about, well, where are we going to stage this final fight? And, and Port Authority, well, Port Authority's no cakewalk these days but in those days it was a real sinkhole of humanity and um so it seemed like the perfect place to have this you know knockdown drag out fight and what i actually went there with a friend to kind of watch my back um you know kind of choreographed the fight not to lee's level of, of detail and effect of course but you know i sort of walked through where they were gonna fight you know that that big uh, pinball, uh, not pinball, but like that big mechanical thing they crash into and, you know, all the pieces scattering around, that was really there. Um, oh, wow. you know, those escalators were really there, you know, so I kind of went around with a camera and took all this reference for Lee and said, okay, here's an angle, here's an angle, here's where they're going to be in, 
you know, page whatever, you know, 27, and, uh, you know, sent him that stuff. And, and, you know, certainly Lee's version of reality is, is far better than reality um, and more dynamic. But, um, you know, I gave him a, a fair amount to work with there. So we were, you know, pretty much in agreement and, um, and in our discussions of how that would, would play out. And, um, and then had a fairly strenuous disagreement about one line in, the, in, the, in that finale, which uh, uh, it took him a long time to kind of come around to my way of, of thinking on it, but um, uh, which was when he says, I forgive you, you know, and, uh, you know, he thought that was the, the wrong thing to put there at that time. But again, it felt right, you know, at, at that moment. Well, I guess you, you kind of qualify it, though, in the script, though, because you do have the internal narration of Matt saying that the words don't come easy. Right, like right. it's it's not, and I think that's an important narration box to have because it qualifies the statement. So it's not, it doesn't seem as hollow. You get to understand why he's saying it. Sure, that didn't matter to Lee, though. No, um. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe that was the qualification you put in there so that Lee would be okay with it. No, 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 he, didn't, he, didn't, he just didn't like any of it. But that's you know that's sometimes the you know the. That's the beauty of a collaboration and a good collaboration. You know, sometimes you know you're you're all synced up, but then sometimes you bring you know a little different outlook to it, and you try not to ever do anything that's going to really upset you know the whole balance. Um, but um, but it did feel like the right thing to me from what I was contributing, mm-hmm. and um, and then you know when Lee and I would come back and write the you know whatever it was three eighty the last the last last one you know before the uh, you know the reboot. I mean, I think we were able to leverage, you know, some of that same spirit again in a different way. Now, after three hundred, which obviously had you know a big impact, um, what was it like trying to figure out a way to top that? Because you knew it was going to be a big story because it's you know Daredevil is at the at the time principal villain being taken down. So, right. what was the pressure like to try and top that and do something new? Um, this is you know. It's interesting. If I go back and I reread those notes in that original thing, I think I had a much clearer vision of what should happen next. And I don't think I read those notes again after I wrote them. Um, and um, you know, that's a condition of of relative youth and, and getting maybe distracted by other things. Who knows? And I think it was also because Lee kind of unexpectedly left the book at that point. I had sort of been hoping and expecting, you know, we would finish this and then we'd roll into you know, another storyline and we build on it and we build on our own dynamic. And there was a little bit of a, of a, um, you know, um, flurry of, okay, who's, you know, who's got the horns as it were, you know, who's carrying the, you know, the nightsticks, um, because there's a little bit of a bouncing around. Who's the artist on Daredevil? Um, you know, we had a couple fill in things. I got one great issue out of Ron Garney, um, who, you know, we desperately tried to kind of like pull in for the long haul. And, um, and, you know, and then finally, you know, finding Scott McDaniel turned out to be an extremely strong choice in its own way. But it took Scott and, and me working together, you know, a little while to kind of find the right the right dynamic and the right sort of storyline. So um, I don't know that that initial pivot to where we went um, was exactly the right thing. In retrospect, it, it wasn't. Um, I think I put the kingpin on the shelf too far you know there was definitely a part of me that wanted to say okay he's, he's out let's leave him out of the picture a little bit take a breather um, but you know there's an old adage of sort of don't save your best ideas for for when because you may never be able to get to them 
Mm. So I, you know, it's people when I when I was an editor, you know, people would often come and say, "I got this really great character, but I don't want to share it yet because I want to, you know, wait until I'm like at this point in time in my career." You may never get to that point in time in your career unless you use that character now. You know, get it out there if it's so great. Um, and um, you know, so I don't think my focus was in the right place. And you know, while the editorial team was very strong in some ways. I think I would have been happy if they had been, if they had taken a firmer hand on me, you know, at, at that way to kind of help direct some of those stories. Now, I, this is a, a random question. I'm just curious in general. When you were writing your Daredevil run and you would have uh, covers with kind of narration on them, were you writing it or was that the editor or who was writing the narration on the actual covers? On the covers, no. Normally that was like uh, stuff that would just show up. Um, I don't think I ever did any of that. Any of that. Um, that was probably, if anybody, like the assistant editor, you know, Pat Garrahy at one point, you know, was the editor for assistant for a while. Um, so probably, um, you know, he was the one, you know, writing a blurb or writing the narration. I mean, we had a lot of narration, like dialogue in a lot of those covers. Mostly it was sort of like, you know, in this issue boxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, that's why I ask, because um, I'm looking at the cover to 305, which I want to ask you about, and uh, the narration almost seems like it goes over the top with the alliteration. Uh, it's, uh, can even the sightless swashbuckler save Spidey from the savage scalpels of the Surgeon General? <laughs> yeah, I, I have many bad turns of phrase in my career, Adam. That is not one of them. <laughs> um, so I will, uh, I will own up to many sins, but that one I will not. So, um, you know, whether that was... Um, you know, uh, sometimes it was assistant editors. Sometimes it was, you know, uh, these kind of things would be thrown in front of interns. You know, fill something in here, and um, uh, so uh, that sounds probably like a like an assistant editor at work. Now, what where was the idea for the Surgeon General as a character? Um, you know, there was probably all that, um, um, uh you know, urban myth stuff going around at that time. And it's probably due for cycling back in, you know, of, of, uh, you know, people being found in, uh, in bathtubs, you know, with ice all around them and they'd wake up and they'd had a night in the town with a beautiful woman and, and, oh my God, somebody cut my kidney out. And, and, you know, these were all friend of a friend sort of stories. And, um, you know, toying around with that, um, seemed like, well, I wonder if that might be an interesting, you know, angle for a story. And I remember the first draft of that. And at that point, I was, you know, also heavily into working on a lot of the horror comics uh, for for Epic. I relaunched uh, Hellraiser, or not relaunched Hellraiser, launched Hellraiser um, as an anthology series when I was uh, an editor there and was continuing to, you know, write and contribute to those kind of titles. And I remember the first draft of that that Surgeon General story was, was... way over the top and, and you know as ridiculous as it is in, in totality it was probably far grislier in its original incarnation I remember Ralph uh, calling me up and just saying you're letting your worlds collide a little bit too much here you know you gotta you gotta rethink this one and um, and so you know that was probably a collision again of those urban myths and just my interest in you know horror type uh, approaches um, and um didn't really hold up. Um, I don't think the Surgeon General has entered uh, any once rogues gallery you know, <laughs> since then. I don't think she's been seen since. No, but could be due for a comeback. You, know? you never know. Exactly. 
Um, when you okay, so a, a couple issues later, you did a crossover with uh, Nomad Punisher War Journal. Uh, what was it like being part of a crossover? Because up was, until then, I guess you were pretty self-contained. Yeah, that was actually a lot of fun because you know I was working with. Um, geez, who would be the folks on there? Was it was it um, is Fabian part of that or? Um, I think Nomad was his. I think so. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I mean, it was the, the crossovers that we did. You know, there were some with Greg Wright. There were some with Marcus McLaurin. There were some with Fabian. Um, these were all people that you know I was really friendly with and really enjoyed working with. So. You know, it was. Um, I never had the, um, you know, the challenge. Uh, fortunately, um, you know, some some crossovers were dictated to you. You know, even in those days, I understand it's it can be far worse now. You know, where you're sort of handing your storyline from a, a bigger corporate um, approach. I don't know that for certain, but that's what I've heard. But even in those days, you know, sometimes there'd be a big edict, and you would be given these like little pieces of a story, and you had to incorporate them, no matter how awkward they were. With those uh, pieces, I think we had all sat down over a couple of long afternoons or, or whatever and worked out all the beats uh, amongst ourselves and then ran them by our respective editors, you know, as one big story. Um, so it, it, it was actually a pretty, you know, painless and kind of enjoyable experience, at least from the creating end of it, you know, whether or not the story itself, you know, holds up uh, very well or held up very well itself. The, the work on it, you know, was pretty pleasant. Now, as you as you were kind of in this run on Daredevil, you were also starting to write Night Stalkers. As you said, you were writing Terror Inc. What was yep. it like to kind of expand while still working on Daredevil at the same time? Um, it was great in the sense of you know you're bringing in you know um, more money. You're um, you're feeling you know that you're building up kind of like a groundswell of work and reputation, hopefully. Um, you know, you're playing in a couple different areas, um, different voices, different, you know, approaches. Um, in, in the retrospect of hindsight, I don't know if it was the right thing to do. You know, I, I don't know that I was in the right place to sort of keep the eye on all the balls in the right way. Um, and, uh, you know, I think maybe some things suffered for that, you know, from that because you're at least I was, you know, maybe moving too rapidly through some things and it would have been better served to pay a little bit more, um, you know, attention in one, one scope or another. But, but it's, you know, when you're in the midst of it, you know, it's a lot of fun, right? you got four or five books coming out a month with your name on it and, you know, you're going to a, a, a convention or a, a signing and, you know, you've got all these things that you're, you know, you're part of and then you're controlling, quote-unquote, you know, different different characters, you know, that, that, it's a heady place to be. So um, uh, altogether, I remember it as a very positive time. But if I had to go back and do it again, I might do it a little bit differently. Now, Fall from Grace is obviously a extremely well, extremely important storyline because it definitely was a, a big shift at the time. Mm-hmm. What was what, what kind of led up to that change? And it's interesting looking back on it now. It looks like. You were doing something different, and at the same time, it looks like Scott McDaniel's style suddenly changed as well. Like he was adapting yep. and trying new things, so it kind of was this perfect storm of a lot of new ideas and, and new looks happening all at the same time. What kind of led into that? Um, you know, it, it was a, it was probably desperation as much as anything else. And by that, I mean, and I've kind of told the story in, in one form or another, you know, before, um, but. You know, there was there was a lot of attention on a very few 
number of titles internally at Marvel at that time. You know, it was mutants and and spiders. And if you didn't have, you know, eight legs or an extra chromosome, you know, good luck to you, you know, in, in trying to get promotion or a special cover or, you know, any of the, the tricks or conceits they were using to promote things at that time. And, you know, Daredevil was an oddball character at that point. It's, you know, Daredevil's, you know, much more popular now. He's a TV show. You know, it's kind of hard to remember, but, you know, as, a, as an unpowered guy, largely known for running around an obscure neighborhood of, of you know, um, uh, New York City uh, with a, you know, questionable rogues gallery in a certain way. Um, you know, he, he, he had his moments in time, but he wasn't always the most uh, impressed even within the company. There was one point where Frank Miller was coming out with a, another book, and it would be coming out right around the time we were coming out with Fall from Grace. And the ad that the internal promotions group ran was, it's Miller time, which aside from the fact that it you know, was ripping off a beer ad, which wasn't very creative, um, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of called him out and said, like, you're disservicing your own character. Like, Frank Miller does phenomenal work. There's no question. I'm not going to put myself in that, in that category. But you're saying that this character doesn't matter unless he's writing it, unless he's contributing to it. And so in the, in the kind of under the onus of all that, you know, we weren't getting a lot of the attention. So we sort of said we need to engineer something. And some of that was like kitchen sink. You know, should we, you know, what, what are the, some of the techniques you could do? Can you do some crossovers? Can you, can you do a costume change? Can you consider bringing back, you know, a character that no one's seen in a while? Um, you know, these are the things you start to spitball with to sort of say what will what will cause the eye, you know, not necessarily of Soren, but you know, an eye to sort of like you know look in your direction and get some you know uh, activity around this. And so, I don't put all those things out there as like, oh, we created a kitchen sink story. You know, we we were thoughtful whether people appreciate that or, or not, or whether it was always executed in the best way or not. Um, but we did then try to craft a story around some of these elements that felt like it, you know, it made sense and led somewhere. But that was what we were working against, and we, we you know, we loved the character, you know, we really did. And it, and it, and um, uh, you know, we we tried to kind of stay with the integrity of who he was and what he could do. But we also knew we had to do some things to kind of, um, you know, up the ante. I mean, at one point, Scott and I even um, paid for like you know, some, um, you know, uh, PR, like on our own, you know, to, to get, uh, you know, articles, you know, uh, written for uh, some of the trades um, to get more attention on. This was before, you know, those issues started to come out and then they became, you know, there was a little bit more attention, a lot more attention for a little while on the character. But at that point, it seemed like nobody wanted to pay attention to it. So we thought we had to jump started on our own. The uh, the caution that ended up happen, like coming about as a result of that storyline, were did you collaborate on that with Scott, or was that more of just his own design, or where did that caution come from with the armor? Um, there were, well, you see, we never called it armor ever, ever. That word was never used, and um, and um, but it was a it was a collaboration. Scott was, I think, still feeling a little bit green at that point. He had been working on the book for a while. He hadn't yet sort of started to experiment with that style that he would then, you know, um, you know, make his own, you know, over time. Um, but, um, we, we knew we wanted to 
have a point in the story, and we knew the reason for the, you know, for the uh, for the shift in the in the costume um, was going to be driven by a by a point in the story, and um, so you know Scott would design various things and send them in, and then we would get together. I was in closer proximity to New York, so I was sometimes in the office more, and then we would uh, you know we would get on the phone and we talk it back and forth. Some of them were. You know, way over the top, spiky things. You know, um, you know, very dangerous looking. And uh, you know, Ralph was always very much, you know, against that kind of thing. You know, saying this isn't, this isn't true to the character. You know, that he shouldn't have this kind of stuff. And um, so there was a fair amount of back and forth. But Scott did a fair amount of designs. Um, and ultimately, you know, what came out of it was, um, you know, was uh, was his influence and a lot of his ideas, but with with input from all of us. I think my first exposure to Daredevil actually was that costume. It was, uh, I think, an appearance that uh, Daredevil made in Amazing Spider-Man in like 1994 or so. So that will always kind of have a special place for me just because that's how I first met the character. And so actually when I was getting married, my uh, groomsman got me a gift and it was actually a nice statue. And it was a variant of the Daredevil statue, but in that, you know, I'm not going to say it armor anymore, but... It's okay. In, in the quote-unquote armored look. Um, so, I mean, he's staring at me right now. So uh, that part, that character arc definitely has a huge part for me because that's how I know Daredevil, at least sure. my first original um, interaction with him. And, there, yeah, I think there's only a couple of licensed things that were ever done with that. I, I have not I have a, you know, really bad action figure. Um, and <laughs> I think that um, that statue, maybe, maybe one other. I know there's a trading card. Um, and the thing with it was, and it was interesting, and like nobody could ever draw it except Scott, essentially. Like Fabian and I had a good laugh over this at one point in a, in a hollow, sad way on my part. But um, in, in, you know, Scott would draw it with a fluidity, and I think a lot of other people took it to say, "Oh, it's armor," you know, and they they would they would bulk it up, you know, they would add rivets to it, they would sort of like you know make it look you know, much denser and, and harder than it was ever meant to be, you know, um, and, and that's, you know, that's a problem ultimately, you know, when you, you design something that you can draw, you know, but then once you're off it or somebody else is taking it on, it takes on a much different identity, but, um, you know, we didn't think it through that much, I guess. Yeah, I guess if it's such a unique design that, you know, it is an expression of that particular artist, it is difficult for other people necessarily to, to make it work. Right, right. But yeah, you wouldn't, you don't think about that when you're developing that kind of thing, though. You're thinking like, oh, this is awesome. Look, it's terrific. You know, because he was thinking of the suppleness and he was thinking of, you know, I think the, um, the sense of what it, um, you know, what it was supposed to be made of. You know, it was supposed to be made of these different, um, uh, biomimetic materials, you know, that were that were representative of different, um, uh, you know, different pieces there. So, now um, I actually had a question coming from uh, one of my frequent co-hosts of the show. He um, uh, Fall from Grace was, you know, a storyline that he really enjoyed it when he was growing up. Um, and he's he his question was involving uh, the there's a, a series of sequences against Venom, um, and he just wanted to know. You know how kind of scripted was the actual kind of fight choreography, or again, Marvel method was it a little looser of a plot for Scott? Like, how was the layout of those fights? Um, I think again, it was um, you know my my plots, and if, if I had one, 
um, I would gladly send you, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, like somewhere around the early 2000s, like I had a hard drive crash and I lost almost everything I'd ever written, um, oh my gosh. which is a lesson to your listeners to always back up. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it was fairly detailed. I mean, you know, I always gave license to, to Scott and, you know, I considered Scott like one of, um, you know, my, my favorite collaborators. And I thought that, you know, he and I had a different energy than say Lee. But you know, we were we were really simpatico in a lot of ways as well. Um, but um, you know, I would break it down just because in my head I knew I had to make it work. But if if um, you know, so I would you know say he, Venom does this or he grabs that or Daredevil does this or, or whatever. Um, just not not to the nth degree. I wasn't you know um, uh, you know telling you what the the year was on the corner on the desk and you know which side was up um or the where the desk was made or what kind of wood it was made from um but you know i would say the desk would smash and a leg flips off and daredevil grabs it and you know swings it that way because in my head i was thinking of it very filmically you know i was thinking of it from almost a storyboard fashion i couldn't illustrate it but i could describe it and then i could give license to that artist and say you know if you can make it better do so, you know, collapse it, you know, condense it. And invariably I had lots of great collaborators who would, who would do that. Again, it was the very rare person who would take what I would describe and then sort of just do a crappy, you know, cheesecake shot. And then I'd be left writing gigantic word balloons to try to explain, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Now it's interesting. So you'd said that, you know, uh, the idea of kind of being born out of desperation, kind of to, throw things in that you know to try and generate interest and also still tell a good story so how did you end up with this kind of cornucopia of new costume return of electra venom who was a big selling character at the same time like it was just kind of hitting all those kind of checklists or well again you start you start somewhere right you say what you know what do you do you got guest stars okay there's no you know clearly there were you know many guest stars in there and 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 frankly probably half again too many um, you know, in, in retrospect, um, and uh, you know that's a sales driver. Costume changes, you know, those are usually sales drivers. Um, and I would say those are probably, again, going back in time, you know, where we, you know, where we started. Um, but we we didn't, you know, just say, okay, let's have Venom, let's have Ghost Rider, let's have whomever, you know, sort of show up and, and you know, just off to the races. It, it started and break down as a kind of a story that would be, you know, how does it stitch together? Like, why does the costume change? You know, and I, you know, we took heat for, well, my gosh, you know, Daredevil would never like, you know, feel that he's, you know, so, um, uh, you know, in danger of being beaten up so much that he needs a stronger costume to go up against these. How dare you think about, it? you know, I, I did a little cheer and a dance. I'll tell you when the TV show ran, um, you know, and, um, uh, but, uh, um, you know, I think we, we knew what we wanted to do from a quote-unquote artificial point of view. You know, we knew those tactics could work. And then it was just a matter of starting to talk back and forth between myself and Scott. And, you know, I said, I have this idea. I read about this. I was a big, you know, believer in, in bits and pieces of news that were real. So the whole conceit of that story that, you know, kicked off so much of it in a kind of a convoluted way uh, in retrospect. But... You know, was that something had been lost, you know, that gas, that product had been lost in the subways, um, that about face, you know, uh, material. 
Um, and there was actually a CIA experiment back in the in the 60s or 70s that the CIA did release a gas that was never identified in the New York City subways, and and nobody ever owned up to it, and and you know it was never discovered what that was all about. Um, so those are the kind of like little bits and fragments that you know said, well, what if? What if it was something like this? What if it was this transmutative, you know, property that that could lead to it? And then where does that go? If every if this thing could basically grant your wish, who would want it? Who would want to come after it? Um, and you know, then you start to say, well, here's a logical way, or I'm sorry, reason for some of those guest stars to want to appear because they want this thing or they want to fight against it or they want to stop it from spreading. And, um, and then it was probably, you know, a little ways into it where, you know, we were just mulling things over and we said, geez, what if we could bring Electra back? You know, does that, does that have a place in a story like this? And ultimately when Ralph kind of gave the go ahead for that, um, and we were pushing for it, we said, this would be interesting if she was here. Um, to me, that's what the story's title always referred to. Like, the fall from grace was really her, ultimately, coming back, you know, from that very pure place she had been with that 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 group that we ended up calling the Chast, you know, Sticks Group and, and so forth. Um, that's, to me, what the story was always ultimately about, was her sacrificing certain things and coming back into play, um, more so than just Murdoch, you know, quote-unquote, giving up his identity. And faking his death. A, a question: um, the Tree of Knowledge. So, yeah. I, actually, before I even get the Tree of Knowledge, so previous you had done kind of shorter stories, and then when you had Fall from Grace, it was a longer story, and then Tree yeah. from Knowledge right afterwards was the same kind of format. It was I think five or six issues. Yeah. What led you to decide to do these longer form, like actually, you know, not just to be continued in the issue, but actually kind of doing it through numbering and is, you know, a six part story. It's right on the cover. Like what kind of contributed to that? You know, it's, it, it, I mean, again, in retrospect, certain things way too convoluted. Um, but on another level, you know, it, it gives you, you know, license to think about something as a more beginning, middle end sort of approach. You know, there's always been an argument among comics creators, um, certainly in that day, and I'm certain, I'm certain now still, um, you know, the, the, the continuity of a never-ending story, you know, doesn't really engender itself to real drama so much, right? Because no matter what you set up, you sort of know that it's going to return to a certain status quo at a certain point, or at least there were certain stories that were done that way for a long time, you know, and that's why, you know, certain manga and, and such, you know, would be you know, more serialized, a complete story unto itself. Um, so it felt like if we if we had something in our heads that could be these self-contained stories um, against that larger continuity, it it felt more event-like. It felt like you know you could you could hinge themes or you know different um, you know different build-ups and and uh, you know um, conflicts and resolutions around. So it felt like a good idea at the time. And and you know, I think there's there's a lot I like about tree knowledge. Actually, there's a lot I like about tree knowledge more than I like about fall from grace. But that's that's me probably an end of two. You know. Now after tree of knowledge, I guess you left Daredevil. I had I had gone off to 
um, write the Electra miniseries with Scott at that point. That was Root, Root of Evil, right? Right, which um, which I liked a lot. And again, it was a chance to work with, with Scott. So um, we knew that that was a fairly bigger enterprise. And, you know, we had asked for a break, um, you know, from Daredevil so we could sort of focus on that. I think that was four issues, or if I remember correctly. And, um, um, and then at the point that I went off to do that, then... Daredevil went through its its editorial um, uh, shuffle. It moved out of Ralph's office, um, where it had been, you know, for a very long time, and then it fell under this whole um, what did they call it? Marvel Knights, I think. You know, which was sort of all these very street um, heroes, and under a different editorial regime, and and they kind of decided they didn't want me working on it, but didn't tell me. So I sort of found that I'd been fired. Um, by some very convoluted set of phone calls and circumstances, so <laughs> so I uh, you know so I was off the book at that point, um, and then wouldn't come back to Daredevil until um, uh, you know Tim Tui called me and Lee for that last that last last issue of the volume one. Mm-hmm. Now in 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 the middle, so the, I'm just looking at some of your selected works. Um, you did a, a what if with uh, with Daredevil? Yeah, that was fun. What was that like to kind of have more freedom to kind of really do anything because of the what if kind of concept? You know, that was the beauty of it, right? You know, um, you know, we used to joke the what if stories were always like, and then the entire universe explodes. You know, (laughs) (laughs) usually, yeah, that's exactly what they were like. Exactly, one choice. You know, it's like you know, if the thing you know went down Yancey Street to the left instead of the right, you know, the entire universe explodes. Um, uh, You know, it was it was. it was just a fun, you know, fun piece. I think maybe Marcus McLaurin was the editor on that one. I can't, if I'm remembering correctly, but it, 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 whoever it was... Um, you're, you're right, by the way. It was McLaurin. It was Marcus, you know, and, and Marcus and I had a good relationship. Marcus was a, a you know, a, a very fair, but, you know, would, you know, wouldn't let you get away with stuff. Um, and, um, you know, had some very good insights, um, you know, on, on character. And so even with a what-if story like that, he wasn't treating it as a, oh yeah, just get it done. You know, there were there were good conversations back and forth. You know, and that one, you know, was a really interesting one to play with because of that dynamic. You know, these characters were usually at, you know, at odds with each other to, to the you know nth degree. You know, all of a sudden you're developing something that um, that has them you know in a much more um, uh, what you know evolutionary relationship you know as it were so um you know great fodder to, to play with and then oh i guess you also got to uh, dabble in uh, part of the original run of amalgam books yes yes with uh, uh assassins now i've i've told i forget who it was it was another creator who was involved with amalgam and i'll, I'll share with you my embarrassing story that uh as i was 12 years old so this makes me much younger <laughs> Um, so I was 12 years old when I first read this, and I was a naive 12-year-old. I didn't know a lot about comic books. I was still just kind of getting into comics. I had no idea that Amalgam wasn't a thing. That, that, it would, that you, you couldn't continue to read these characters. Exactly. So um, the fact that you know there was the editor's notes and all this stuff that made it seem like there was this big universe that you'd never heard of before, I totally right. bought in. 12-year-old me was, was the patsy who right. was then ready for more. Right, and, and but isn't that the beautiful thing about like kind of creating like a metaverse like that, you know, and that 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 they went to that extra trouble to kind of create that whole framing, 
you know, around it. Um, it shows the it, commitment to the gig. Yeah, it really does. It yeah. really does. And then that was, you know, those were fun things that kind of, you know, collide together, you know, in, in its own way. And, and taking, again, some characters that, you know, I played with in one way or another and suddenly looking at them in a very view askew sort of way, um, you know, no downside to it except for the fact that, you know, you invest a lot into, um, uh, you know, creating conceits and little allusions to backstories, as it were, that, that ultimately aren't going to go anywhere. No, but yeah, I I always I always really dug that myself because I, I just I, I love the Malcolm concept because it was familiar but different and yeah. it, it plays the more you know about either the DC or Marvel universes the more you got out of those books. Sure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because it was it was just it was the whole thing the whole experiment was basically a wink and a nod. It was like you know this now it's just a little different, but you're getting to see these two flavors mixed together in a way you didn't think was possible. Right. And you know it's the it's it, you know as a fan of comics and as as you know as as creators you know sit around and, and you know riff. I mean this, this is the nonsense that, that is talked about. You know, well, what if the Riddler was this, and what if you know you know uh, Catwoman was that? I mean, these, these are the conversations you have, and you know suddenly you have a chance to make it real into a real story. It's um uh you know it's it's bread and butter to people. Now, how did you end up writing an adaptation of uh, the Sliders TV show? You know, um, I had <laughs> these weird like connections and stuff. Um, I had it, uh, read in Wired magazine, um, which I was a big fan of, um, this little blurb about a game called Magic, right? And so, uh, you know Magic, I'm sure, you know, The, the mm-hmm. Gathering, you know, and... and uh, picked up a couple of decks of cards for my brothers, you know, for a Christmas gift or a birthday gift or something. And these two got completely addicted to it. You know, I took to it, enjoyed it, but they were deep in the, Oh, let's buy that rare card, you know, crazy. And, um, and, uh, so there was a magic, the gathering, um, kind of show or whatever in New York in some, in some basement convention sort of setup, And, uh, Wandering in there with them one day was um, the folks from, well, Valiant Acclaim Comics, you know, who were doing a Magic the Gathering um, comic. So I started chatting up, um, you know, these folks, which ultimately led to uh, my conversations with Jeff Gomez, who was the editor over that stuff at that point, and did a couple of Magic the Gathering pieces. And then, uh, lo and behold, they got the Sliders license. And gave me a call and said, you know, would you be interested in trying to help us adapt this, you know, into this? It's, it's again, sort of proof of, of um, I guess, ability. And, you know, if you, if you deliver and you're thoughtful about what you're doing, um, it, it can lead to, to good things. So the, the magic, you know, comics were uh, detail-oriented. You know, you had to take what was coming from, uh, you know, the, the, um, the source holder of it and incorporate the story and deliver on a lot of details so that was a proven ability to work with licensed material with new people and it was the same instance with uh, with sliders and then um um you know there were there were a few of those um but they were never handed over to me i think i had to audition for almost every one of them uh you know <laughs> which was uh, you know there was a proposal written you know for different ones and uh you know, you you kind of had to you know get in on the different the different storylines. We actually did one for a, a Sliders, a Quantum Leap one that never kind of came through to fruition. But I remember that one 
That sounds uh, awesome. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a ton of fun to think about, and it just never kind of came together. Oh, that would have been so cool. So mo- moving on, I guess a little bit. Um, you also got the the uh, the chance to write uh, the Daredevil Batman crossover. Yes. Yes. Now, how how did you get picked for that? Because I'm guessing there would have been a lot of people who up for that particular job. You know, um, that was one that you know had been kind of in the proposal queue with a lot of different things. You know, in the in the um, you know when fall fall from grace, you know merits or not, you know made a pretty big splash at the time around Daredevil, and before the whole uh, you know character was transitioned over to um, you know to the Marvel Knights label uh you know ralph pat garrahy myself scott um y- you know we we said we've got you know a little bit of lightning in a bottle here let's let's build some stuff around this you know so we had actually put out like three or four proposals for a number of different um uh you know daredevil type miniseries we had we had things going there's a time travel um you know, a uh, uh, series where he was going to go back in time and almost fall into old gang New York in the time of like Boss Tweed, um, where uh, you know he was going to be trapped there and have to you know uh, you know work his way back. There was a uh, um, uh, there was a I think a sort of a you know, Daredevil um, you know year you know two you know sort of a, approach to things and among those different proposals you know was a was a Batman Daredevil. You know, crossover, and uh, Ralph was good friends with Danny O'Neill, who was the editor on Batman at that time, and um, so the conversation started, but took a long time. And by that point, I was sort of off the the regular title, um, but the the project memo was still there, still in existence. And um, so, even though it took a while to kind of finally come to fruition, you know. I had put it into motion or helped put it into motion. I was still listed on it, and I was fairly persistent about saying, listen, we, we kicked this off. We got this going. Are you guys interested in pursuing this? And um, that was a place where persistence kind of paid off. The only difference was uh, Lee uh, Weeks was the original artist um, assigned to it, and uh, for various reasons, it wasn't something he at that point wanted to, to pursue. And then, you know, it worked out that uh, that Scott was, um, you know, um, you know, the good option to, uh, you know, come in as a as a partner on that. I don't think it's a great story. You know, it's got some it's got some nice uh, conceits in it. You know, I was always pretty proud of like finding the kind of like Murdoch, you know, dent connection. But uh, you know, uh, there could have been some better better things done with it. But it's got some nice beats. In it. And uh, any particular kind of issues with that that you would rewrite in particular? Yeah, I think I think you know I, I felt I felt prey to the um, the whole nonsense of like you know they meet they fight they team up you know that kind of rhythm you know I, I, I you know in hindsight and looking back with clearer eyes or maturity or whatever I would have skipped the whole fight thing I, I, I think that's you know, you got some you got some um, visual dynamics out of it, but it didn't really contribute much to um, you know to the story. I, I that one, I think it's it's easier to give you a pass on, or any writer writing any of those types of crossover books, because that's kind of what people want to see, even if they don't really want to see it. Yeah, but you know, yes, thank you for the pass, um, and and um, um, 
but I think there's, you know, you you can get the conflict without, you know, without dragging it out, you know, mm-hmm. in, in in exactly the same, you know, the same sort of way. So. Now, how did how did you end up writing the last issue of Daredevil Volume One? Um, you know, Tim Tui, who I'd worked with on a couple of things, um, was handed that book, and I think by his own admission, you know, it, it, he was just given it as kind of like lame duck. Everybody knew who was coming into the title with that next issue. That was going to be the big boost. Um, you know, Daredevil had just been given sort of like like. Just let it run it run it out, you know. Get get rid of these last few issues, and um, you know, um, he just called me kind of out of the, you know, out of the blue because I, I don't think I was um, exactly in a lot of people's radars at that point. I think I was starting to segue out of um, out of comics, um, and um, not that it was by choice, but um, uh, and he said, you know, listen, you know, I, I love what you did. I love what you and Lee did. You know, um, would you by any chance, you know, be interested in kind of coming back and writing this this last issue? You know, kind of he, he wasn't a big fan. I don't think I'm hope I'm not speaking, um, you know, uh, incorrectly about him, but I, I don't think he was a big fan of what had been going on with the character up to that point, um, or sort of in some of the directions it had gone. And he said, you know, nobody's going to pay any attention to what you're doing. You know, like you can pretty much do whatever you want. And, um, you know, could you bring back, you know, some of the, the good stuff you had done? And I think he's the one who suggested, you know, re-teaming with Lee. And I got on the phone with Lee, and uh, I know he wasn't big on it initially. You know, he thought it was kind of like a, maybe a step backwards. I've done this. This is going to feel like, you know, um, you know uh, I'm falling into the past or whatever. So he wasn't game for it initially. But um, I worked on him a little bit, and, and I know that ultimately he ended up being very happy that he took the, the assignment, and we were, you know, very happy with that story. I think that, that story in a lot of ways was a better, um, you know, out, at least for me, in terms of if I never worked on the character again, which is probably the case, um, <laughs> you, know, um, um, you know, that's a great one to go out on. I think, I, you know, I, I, I hit a lot of the notes I... I liked about what I did. I brought, you know, I, I, if I'm patting myself on the back, I always liked the sensory things I did with the internal dialogue or the, the way I described, you know, the way he experienced the city. Um, I liked, you know, playing around with the different neighborhoods that we did there. Um, I liked the different points of view and, you know, just a chance to work with, um, you know, with, uh, with Lee again. Um, and, you know, the Kingpin and, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there's a line in there somewhere where we even played off the forgive you line. You know? I was actually just about to ask that because I was just looking at that page that uh, it's been a while, hasn't it, Willie? But no slow dance around Port Authority this time and no forgiveness. Right, right. So that was that was my gimme back to, uh, to Lee, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now you know how the dots connect, you know. 80 issues later. Exactly. Um, now... You, you've kind of alluded to it, but kind of moving out of comics work, um, where I mean, I as as a, a reader of this kind of era and reading your Daredevil stuff, I was kind of wondering where you went. Right, I did too. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's a it's a tricky situation. You know, you 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 know the you know the. The you know the industry took a big hit. What was it, ninety five, ninety six? You know where 
you know, there's there was kind of that crash, you know, where a lot of the, um, um, you know, the the so-called readership went away when everyone suddenly like wised up to the fact that all the the variant covers and all the uh, you know the uh, the gimmicks weren't weren't working anymore. Um, a lot of shops closed. A lot of uh, people were laid off. You know, staff was laid off. Um, you know, and um, you know that was a troubling time for a lot of people in comics. It was hard to get work, um, and um, and uh, you know, so you were scrabbling more for for different different projects. And um, you know, I found some you know you know uh, pickup work in various places. I did some work I was really proud of for Milestone. I did some stuff for Dark Horse. Um, you know, uh, you know, had a lot of fun with with some creators, but it was definitely more um, project to project as opposed to you know, you've got something kind of going that gives you a sort of a stable base. And, um, you know, around that time, I was getting much more interested in, in digital work. I was hoping to break into, like, game writing and, and such, and I was putting my efforts in that direction. And, um, you know, finally, I was trying to pitch a couple projects to a, a guy at uh, D.C., and, uh, and it was a pretty good idea. And um, But I've been trying to get this guy on the phone forever and a day, and finally I, I got it one late night. And I, I knew when he picked the phone up, I could tell by the, the tone of his voice, he hadn't expected it to be me. You know, it's like, oh, geez, you know, it's this guy. And I was trying to go with all the lessons that I had done when I was an editor. The, the lessons I would always go with people was, you know, before you send a proposal in, check with an editor, see if they're going to be receptive to it. So I said to this guy, listen, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad I got you. You know, I'm not going to keep you long. I've got a great idea. I'm working with this artist. I think you're really going to dig it. I think it fits your whole zone. Is it okay if I send the proposal in? You know, I just want it to be on your radar screen. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You know, send it in. I'll definitely get a look at it. So I'm feeling pretty good. And I said, great, I'll get it off in the mail tomorrow. And as I'm hanging the phone up, he says, and who are you again? And Aww. it was like this, you know, yeah, <laughs> wah, wah, right? And it was this kind of damning moment of like feeling like, you know, I've been doing that for 10 years, you know, 12 years at that point. And um, it just felt, you know, like, why am I banging my head against this? You know, if I'm going to go bang my head against something, I'll go bang my head up against a different new industry and uh, and see if I can, you know, make, um, you know, way in there. I love comics. Yeah, I still love comics. Um, I think it's a lot of fun, but I didn't have at that point in time the wherewithal to kind of work against that, you know, um, you know, past your expiration date or the kind of where are you now, you know, sort of approach when I was trying to, you know, pay bills and, you know, start a family ultimately and, and those kind of things. So, um, you know, focused more of my efforts toward um, digital work, internet work, early things there. And, um, and that, you know, picked up its steam in one way or another. And, um, and then you kind of, you know, you're on another, you're on another path and that's, that's pretty much, you know, where, where, where it ends up going to. Now, I think more, more over the course of the next few years, I think more and more people will get more exposed to your Daredevil run now that, uh, Marvel's putting together their Epic collections. Um, yeah, those have been great. I've, I've, they've actually been, Marvel's been terrific. I mean, actually, you know, um, about, sending those things out like and, and uh, they're really nice volumes so um, um, that's uh, you know that was a nice surprise to kind of start receiving those you know um, late last year early this year whatever it was and um, 
you know. So yeah, I'm sure people will, you know, have a chance to see it. And I hope they find some stuff that they they, they like in it. It's interesting because originally I remember um, I remember seeing a couple of years ago, or maybe a year or two ago, that Fall from Grace was coming out in trade paperback as a new collected volume with Tree of Knowledge, and I was like, oh, that's that's awesome! Like it had been out of print forever, and right, right before it came out, then it because I was on a, a message board that was all about kind of these new epic collections because people were really excited about the, the format and the concept. And originally, I think there was only supposed to be four different titles that were part of it. And then uh, they kind of stealthily added Daredevil to the epic collection line because they had already solicited that they were going to be doing, you know, Tree of Knowledge and Fall from Grace. And suddenly it was part of this epic collection. And now we can look forward to actually having eventually, at least for the first volume of Daredevil, all, you know, all of it in one big trade paperback collection, which is... You know, great, and I'm glad that I'll finally be able to have you know your um, last right storyline in in trade because I was too young to have bought it in trade when it first came out. I have the singles, but I would like to have it on my shelf so I can pass it around because again, it, I do think it's one of the best Daredevil stories, and it, I think it stands up there with Born Again. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm I have no. I'm, I'm very you know uh, self critical you know of a lot of stuff, but I don't have a lot of problems with that one. I, I think that one holds up you know pretty well and. You know the beats in it. You know, um, you know, are, are you know they were again sort of written in a in a kind of a white heat, as it were, and and I think that's uh, that's maybe why it uh, it works as well as it does. Your uh, your use of I guess Nick Fury and Shield as you know kind of recurring characters throughout your Daredevil run. Would do you think that was partially born of you know your first kind of regular work being on Nick Fury and having kind of a Almost, this is going to sound condescending, and I apologize if it sounds that way. But almost like a like a comic book writer's security blanket. Um, you know, it could be, but I think it's also like a little bit of a grounded reality. You know, Mm. like like I had said before. You know, the thing with Fury was you could you could you could bring in fantastic things, right? You know, you could bring in helicarriers and you know deep sea submarines and you know and science fiction. You know. uh, you know, he, you know, sort of um, um, conceits and such, um, but it, but he was a realistic character. Big big airports around that, right? And and Daredevil is too. You know, hypersenses aside, you know, this guy is is physically demanding. You know, he's physically raw. You know, I mean, I'm sure you know you, you know, uh, as a, obviously a fan of the character, you know, love the hell out of the the the, the, the scene in the TV show in the hallway, right, where he's just beating. Oh, absolutely! He's kind of senseless, and he's getting beaten senseless, right? You know, it's that, it's that. that you know, <laughs> how is this possible? As I keep like coming back for more, you know, and and you know, I think the the thing with Fury as a character, definitely, I like the character, you know, and you 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 know, you go to the things you like, but I think there was a certain groundedness to that that would give me, um, you know, things I could use, and probably more than a security blanket, I would say that you know. Uh, you know, Shield can sometimes be the god in the machine, right? It's the it's the thing you can bring in when you need to introduce the weird technology or the out there thing where you don't want to go so far fields that Reed Richards drop in or go, you know, to the high and mighty Avengers or something like that. You know, it's easy to sort of say there's a there's a spy angle here or a conspiracy angle here and introduce something through that avenue. Um so um uh, you know that was probably you know the the part and parcel you, you know of it, but uh, but certainly in the last rites, uh, you know story, it was you know partly Fury thinking he was 
you know, manipulating Daredevil, but ultimately the, the cool thing about it is Daredevil is actually manipulating them, which is makes him even a stronger, you know, character in the moment. From uh, in terms of Marvel, in terms of Marvel characters, who would you say is kind of the, the character you're you you most wish you'd had a chance to write? Oh, that's a good question. Um, um, you know, I think I would have liked to play with the Fantastic Four. Um, you know, as as a, can I say a set of characters, or does that have to be a singular one? No, no, I, no. That 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 perfectly that, that I works. Think that, I think that group, you know, is was and is you know a hell of a lot of fun and. Um, you know, runs the gamut from, you know, quirky, you know, wonk geek, you know, techno babble of, you know, Reed Richards to, you know, the flamboyance of, you know, Johnny Storm to the angst, um, you know, grim and, and everything in between. So it's got such a, you know, a, a dynamic mix there. Um, that would have been something, you know, to kind of um, have fun with. And I think if you go in the, in the right direction, you know, with it, you really throw them into the extreme end of their, you know their situation, the incredible, you know, interdimensional sort of stuff. It could really be be a lot of fun. Um, but in one way or another, I got to play with you know, got to play with quite a few characters. You know, not always, um, you know, in the in the, um, you know, even the X Men, I got to play with a little bit. You know, in, in a few places, some of these digital comics I worked on. There was a, a few places where we we got to play with them. So I I got to touch a lot of stuff, a lot, a lot of fun toys to play with. What about uh, villains? Are there any villains that you wish, or you, you had a you know a story in mind, or something you wish you could have done with a villain? Well, a villain, yeah. Um, you know, um, Mephisto. You know, I, I really should have played with Mephisto at some point. <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, you may as well go like right to the heart of it. But I think there's something uh, just so, uh, you know, um, you know, powerful about that. Um, that I would like to have kind of, you know, gotten into that. And it plays again to sort of my, you know, interest in sort of the occult and horror. And, uh, you know, even when we did the, uh, the Midnight Suns and the Night Stalkers, you know, we never kind of got to that, you know, that edge of it, oddly enough. You know, we had sort of introduced some in-between characters um, instead of kind of playing to the heart of some of those really, you know, dark forces that were already available. And I think that would have been, uh, you know, a good one to, to get into a little bit. Excellent. Well, Dan, thank you so much for uh, for joining us tonight and uh, for telling us all about uh, you know your your time with comics and especially with Daredevil. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. I really appreciate your interest and your time. And I hope when you put this all together, it still makes sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Adam. Thank you again. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Bye bye.